This particular passage in the Gospel of John is challenging for two reasons. The first is its length. It's a long and meaty story, rich with twists, turns, and layers of meaning. And second is its content, because it cuts to the heart of the human experience. It opens with a question from the disciples. Why was this man born blind? Was it his sin or the sin of his parents? According to the disciples, someone is at fault here. When they see someone suffering, their first instinct is to seek out someone to accuse. It's so much easier to deal with the suffering we see in the world around us if we can find someone to blame. If it's their fault, then it's not my problem. As my favorite Polish expression goes, not my circus, not my monkeys. But Jesus refuses to play this game. Instead, he reframes the situation. This is not a chance to play the blame game. It is a chance to see God's redemptive and restorative purposes bursting into the world. These are difficult words for us as we struggle to figure out God's purposes and goodness in a world being ravaged by the COVID-19 pandemic. The suffering we see raises questions. As Christians, it's okay not to have the answers. It's okay to have the same questions. The same Jesus who heals here will weep two chapters later at the grave of Lazarus, even though he knows the end of the story that he is transforming. He can handle our questions. What he rejects, however, is our desire to find someone to blame so that we can wash our hands of our calling to be part of the solution. As Jesus says himself, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus then goes off to heal the man. And in the weirdest way imaginable, he spits on the ground, he makes mud, he rubs it on the man's eyes, and he sends him off to wash it in the pole of Shalom. When he does, he can see. It's strange to read about a miracle where the methodology is almost more mystifying than the miracle itself. As you can imagine, scholars have debated the meaning and purpose of this for almost 2,000 years. The Gospels are packed full of examples of Jesus healing with a word or a touch. So why the mud? The best interpretation that I have found comes from Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers. According to Irenaeus, the mud is significant because it takes us back to the beginning of the story, to Genesis, where God makes mud, shapes it, breathes into it, and creates us in his image. The more familiar we are with the Gospel of John, the less surprising this becomes to us. Because the book begins exactly like Genesis. Genesis begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John begins, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And when he writes the word, he's referring to Jesus. But by beginning by saying, in the beginning, he wants us to think of Genesis. He wants us to think of how everything began. He wants us to think of creation. And throughout the gospel, there are seven signs which some scholars argue is part of a a subtle hidden theme that runs the whole way through the book. The first sign, it says, is the story of the wedding at Cana where Jesus turns water into wine. When John finishes telling the story, he ends it by saying, and this was the first sign. And scholars have argued about this for hundreds of years. But there seems to be seven signs throughout the book. And these seven signs, some say, are like the seven days of creation. The eighth sign, they say, is the resurrection. As a result, the world we live in now is a new week. It's a recreation. It is a world that is forever changed by Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. So why is the mud significant then? Because God is recreating the world. 
He will make all things new. He will rescue what is lost. He will restore what is broken. And he will redeem what has been abandoned. What's tragic in this story is that those who claim to be religious leaders, instead of bowing to worship, start an investigation. And the investigation isn't into the miracle itself. It's into whether or not it was done on the wrong day, whether or not it was done on the Sabbath. Because they care more about the protocol than the person. They care more about the minutia of the law than the miracles of the one who gave the law to them. If there's one thing I've learned from being a university chaplain, it's that I am most likely to be blind to what God is doing when I stare so hard at the place I expect him to be that I miss him in the places that he is already doing his thing, transforming, redeeming, renewing, restoring. In verse 24, the religious authorities interrogate the formerly blind man, demanding answers for how this happened to him and pushing him to agree with them that this Jesus must be a sinner. Beautifully, the man replies with the only answer he has. He says, I do not know whether or not he is a sinner. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. We may not have answers to all the suffering that we see in our world. We cannot explain it away. We cannot change it. We cannot fix it. We cannot cure it. But we can ask for open eyes to see it, open hearts to those who are enduring it, and open lives for God to work through us, so that, as Jesus explains to the disciples when they are confronted with suffering, God's works might be revealed in us.